All right, well, as Kelly said, we're back in this series of Leaning Upstream today. I want to take on two massive cultural problems, sexual abuse and sex trafficking. When you couple those two with pornography, they make an unholy trinity. They're the leading forms of sexual assault, sexual exploitation, sexual violence in both the United States and the world today. Now this morning, I'm not going to get into any sort of uncomfortable detail, but I am going to shoot straight, uh, straight from the Bible, because I want to awaken you, I want to challenge you. Uh, these two issues, uh, abuse and trafficking, are too big, too poisonous for us to look the other way. Actually, that was exactly the sin of the priest and the Levite in the famous parable of the Good Samaritan. Uh, they were religious, the priest and the Levite were religious, but they were too busy, too preoccupied, too self-absorbed to attend to the man bleeding in the road right in front of them. So this morning, because of uh, the nature of these issues, I'm going to, I've chosen to, to focus more on a, abuse than trafficking, but in no way do I want to minimize uh, the, the horror of, of sex trafficking uh, today. But let's start with trafficking. Look at these words from David Platt in his book, Counterculture. I'm ashamed to confess that it wasn't until recently that I realized the severity of sex trafficking in the world. For a long time, the idea of slavery seemed to me a relic of a bygone era centuries before my time. I never could have imagined that there are more slaves today than were seized from Africa in four centuries of the transatlantic slave trade. I never could have comprehended that 27 million people live in slavery today, more than at any other time in history. I never could have fathomed that many of these millions are being bought, sold, and exploited for sex in what has become one of the fastest growing industries on earth. Now, sex trafficking is all about defenseless, poverty-stricken young girls, sometimes young boys, uh, uh, being almost kidnapped, uh, manipulated out of their, uh, their families, and sold into prostitution, and held captive in prostitution in faraway places like Nepal, India, Asia. But it's also about something that is going on here in the United States. As a matter of fact, not too long ago, the New York Times said Chicago is a leading hub for sex trafficking in the United States. Just a week ago or so, I read an article in the Daily Herald about a man arrested here in the suburbs for sex trafficking in the suburbs. And before that, we read about a sex trafficking ring being broken up in Rockford. Rockford? This problem is much more pervasive, much deeper than we realize here in the U.S. and around the world. 
Now let me go on. Let's uh, turn to uh, abuse. Look at these words. Childhood sexual abuse occurs in the lives of one in four women and one in six men before the age of 18. According to the U.S. Department of Justice, someone is sexually assaulted every two minutes in the U.S. In September 2009, Baylor University School of Social Work reported that 3.1% of adult women who attend religious services at least once a month have been victims of clergy sexual abuse since turning 18. That means you have men and women in your church who have experienced a trauma of abuse and assault, some by previous shepherds. Many victims have never spoken about their experience. Stop and think about the numbers in the context of the number of people in your church, youth group, Bible study, and you can begin to grasp something of the regularity of these crimes. Given the impact of sexual violence on an individual life and society, and given the frequency of its occurrence, it is absolutely crucial that the church not be silent. Not only does God call us to intervene, he also calls his church to be a refuge and a place for hope and healing. Anything less is a failure to demonstrate his character in this world. Today in the United States, one in five college women will be sexually assaulted before they graduate. One in five. Now, what is sexual assault? Well, the, the definitions vary. Uh, but at the broadest level, it's unwanted physical, psychological, verbal, sexual behavior toward another without their consent. It, it usually involves the abuse of power, authority, force. And in the vast majority of cases, the perpetrators are not strangers, but known to the victims. Now, uh, I have never been a good sleeper. I'm actually a, a pretty lousy sleeper. been that way for decades. Uh, it's always been a kind of thorn in my flesh. But I, but I want you to know, since I began this series, we began this series, I have been sleeping horribly. The darkness of the human heart, uh, the darkness of each and every one of our hearts revealed in these issues we have been going through has just uh, been overwhelming to me as, I, as I've been reading, as I've been digging, as I've been uh, studying. The evil around us always points to the evil inside us. And, and this has just been a dark period uh, for me. You see, abuse and trafficking aren't just issues in the developing world that somehow we can get distance from. They're going on right here in DuPage County, right here at Wheaton Bible Church, right here among our families. And it doesn't matter your skin color, doesn't matter your socioeconomic status. This touches all of us, all of us.
So let's look at God's word. I want you to grab your Bibles or turn on your Bibles. If you didn't bring a Bible, I want you to see this in the Bible today. So grab a Bible in front of you. Turn in the Old Testament to 2 Samuel 13. It's about page 310, 11, or, or, or 12 in those Bibles in, in front of you. Grab one. But before I look at this dark passage... Uh, I, I want to say to you, if you are here and you have suffered from sexual assault, abuse, what, what happened to you is not your fault. Uh, I want you to hear from me, you are not to blame. You did not deserve it and you are not worthless. And you do not need to pretend that nothing happened. And you do yourself and the people around you no favors if you simmer in silence. And this is one of the takeaways of this passage, 2 Samuel chapter 13. You were sinned against. And yet, despite all the pain, all the trauma, all all the horror, and we never want to minimize that, There is hope, there is healing, and I will get to that. But look at these words before we get to this passage. Disgrace is the opposite of grace. Grace is love that seeks you out even if you have nothing to give in return. Grace is being loved when you are or feel unlovable. Grace is the power to turn despair into hope. Grace listens, grace lifts up, grace cures, it transforms and heals. Disgrace destroys, causes pain, deforms, and wounds. It alienates and isolates. Disgrace makes you feel worthless, rejected, unwanted, and repulsive, like a persona non grata, a person without grace. Disgrace silences and shuns. Your suffering of disgrace is only increased when others force your silence. The refusals of others to speak about sexual assault and listen to victims tell the truth is a refusal to offer grace and healing. To your sense of disgrace, God restores, heals, and recreates through grace. A good short definition of grace is one-way love. You've heard me use this before. This is the opposite of your experience of assault, which was one-way violence. To your experience of one-way violence, God brings one-way love. The contrast between the two is staggering. Staggering. Let's begin in verse 1. 2 Samuel chapter 13. In the course of time, Amnon son of David, fell in love with Tamar, the beautiful sister of Absalom, son of David. Now Amnon is the oldest son of David. That means he is heir to the throne. That means he is a crown prince. That means he is the second most important person in Israel. Tamar is a daughter of David by a different wife. Therefore, the two are half-brother, half-sister. Absalom is Tamar's full brother. In addition, we are also told in verse 1 that 
Tamar was beautiful. Tamar was beautiful. And as we go through this passage, what we discover, I, I think, is that she was beautiful on the inside as well as the outside. Maybe she was one of the most striking and most esteemed women in all of Israel. Think Princess Diana without the blonde hair. All of them, all, all three of these uh, uh, people mentioned in verse 1 are all children of David. That means they are part of the most looked up to, most talked about, most famous family in Israel and Israel's history. Bar none. Let's continue verse 2. Amnon became frustrated to the point of illness on account of his sister Tamar, for she was a virgin and it seemed impossible for him to do anything to her. Now, Amnon had a friend named Jonadab. Now let's uh, skip down a, a couple of verses and let's uh, pick it up in verse 5. Here's what Jonadab the friend tells Amnon to do. Go to bed and pretend to be ill, Jonadab said. When your father comes to see you, say to him, I would like my sister Tamar to come and give me something to eat. Let her prepare the food in my sight so I may watch her and then eat it from her hand. Now skip verse 6, go down to verse 7, the next paragraph. David, the father, sent word to Tamar at the palace, go to the house of your brother Amnon and prepare some food for him. So Tamar went to the house of her brother Amnon, who was lying down. She took some dough, kneaded it, made the bread in his sight, and baked it. Then she took the pan and served him the bread, but he refused to eat it. Now, reading between the lines, what the author wants to understand, us to understand is she never saw anything coming. Never saw anything coming. Send everyone out of here, Amnon said. So everyone left him. Then Amnon said to Tamar, bring the food here into my bedroom so I may eat it from her hand. And Tamar took the bread she had prepared and brought it to her brother Amnon in his bedroom. But when she took it to him to eat, he grabbed her and said, come to bed with me, my sister. Don't, my brother. Don't force me. Such a thing should not be done in Israel. Don't do this wicked thing. Here she sounds like Joseph in Genesis chapter 39. What about me? Where could I get rid of my disgrace? Now underline, circle the word disgrace. In some of your translations, it'll be shame. What about you? You would be like one of the wicked fools in Israel. Please speak to the king. He, he will not keep me from being married to you. But he refused to listen to her. And since he was stronger than she, he raped her. Look. According to the FBI, there is one rape in the United States every 6.6 minutes. But this is more than rape. This is incest. And we don't know exactly what Tamar meant when she said, um, uh, go to our, our, our father David, he won't refuse us. Uh, I think she's just stalling. What we do know is that this was strictly forbidden multiple times in the Old Testament. Look at Leviticus 18. 
Do not have sexual relations with your sister, either your father's daughter or your mother's daughter, whether she was born in the same home or elsewhere. Let's look at another one of Leviticus 20. If a man marries a sister, the daughter of either his father or mother, and they have sexual relations, it's a disgrace. They are to be publicly removed from their people. He has dishonored his sister and will be held responsible. That this happens in the royal family, the number one family in Israel illustrates the capacity of the human heart for evil. And it means it can happen anywhere. Now let's go on. Let's keep reading. Let's get to the aftermath. Verse 15. Then Amnon hated her with an intense hatred. In fact, he hated her more than he had loved her. Amnon said to her, get up and get out. No, she said to him, Sending me away would be a greater wrong than what you have already done to me. But he refused to listen to her. He called his personal servant and said, get this woman out of here and bolt the door after her. So his servant put her out and bolted the door after her. Now I'm going to continue, but let me just say something. How in the world is it that Amnon can do such a 180? Love to the point of illness violent hatred. And Amnon isn't a fool, the second most important person in Israel. The only answer is the capacity of the human heart for evil. This evil inherent in the human heart. Experts today tell us that sexual violence isn't just a a crime of lust, it's also a crime of domination in many cases, a, a crime of conquest, a crime of hate. And that's exactly, precisely what the biblical author is showing us. Where the the victim becomes an an object, an it. Now let's continue reading. Let's pick it up in the second half of verse 18. Uh, Tamar was wearing a richly ornamented robe. For this was the kind of garment the virgin daughters of the king wore. Tamar put ashes on her head, tore the ornamented robe she was wearing. She put her hand on her head and went away weeping aloud as she went. Her brother Absalom said to her, Has that Amnon, your brother, been with you? Be quiet now, my sister. He is your brother. Don't take this thing to heart. (laughs) And Tamar lived in her brother Absalom's house, a desolate woman. When King David heard all this, he was furious. Absalom never said a word to Amnon, either good or bad. He hated Amnon because he had disgraced his sister, his full sister, Tamar. And the rest of the chapter is about Absalom murdering Amnon. Now I want to say a couple of things here. The author wants us to understand that Tamar is ruined. Tamar's external actions in verse 19, look at verse 19, picture a much deeper inner turmoil that is frankly hard to comprehend unless you've been there. 
It's a, a verse 19 is a picture of complete and total wipeout, complete and total devastation, disgrace, shame, humiliation. Uh, ashes on, on her head, tearing her royal uh, robe, uh, weeping and wailing, crying out loud are all symbols of uh, humiliation, mourning, disgrace, uh, despair. The author, the biblical author, wants us to sympathize with Tamar. In addition, let me just say, while sex may be personal, it is never private. It's always relational. As a result, Absalom will kill his half-brother. In the previous chapter, chapter 12, on the heels of David the father's adultery and murder, Nathan the prophet comes to him and says, the consequence of this is going to be violence in your family. The sword will not depart from your family. Here in the very next chapter, chapter 13, we're seeing these consequences played out. Sex is never private. Not David with Bathsheba, not Amnon with Tamar. Finally, to, to make matters worse, while David is furious, according to verse 21, he will do nothing to punish his son, Amnon, for disgracing his daughter. David will do nothing. Uh, David has become weak. Weakened by his own sin. Sexual sin, sin of murder. And as a result, what has happened is David has lost moral clarity. Uh, moral fiber, moral uh, backbone. And so as a result, David's inaction, his silence will heap further disgrace on his very own daughter. Where's my dad? Why isn't he doing something about this despicable brother, Amnon? By the way, and this is a parenthesis, and hang with me for a moment. This is why I came to Christ in college. Not because of morbid stories like this, but because Christianity offers answers that do not exist apart from belief in God, apart from the existence of God. Now, what do I mean? You and I uh, read the papers, we read about sex trafficking, we read about sexual abuse. We read this story here in the Bible and everything in us says it's wrong. But if God doesn't exist, you have no ultimate basis for your revulsion of what's happening in the world today or what's happening here in the Bible. We are not autonomous beings that, that live in this um, godless vacuum. The very reason everything inside of you says this is wrong uh, the very reason you are sympathetic to, to Tamar uh, points to the fact that we have been created in the image of God with a dignity that is sacred. 
And so let me say this as strongly as I can. How dare you call this evil and then functionally deny every day the existence of the only one who can make this an evil. Your autonomy, my autonomy is an illusion. We live in a world created by God, infused with morality. We are moral beings. And the very things you and I care so deeply about, uh, dignity, uh, morality, uh, shared values, community, safe relationships are impossible apart from God. Apart from faith. Uh, let me say it differently. Darkness is only darkness if there is light. That is one of the main reasons I came to Christ. Seeing the complexity of what's going on in the world around me, but, but, but realizing there are no answers. There are just flat no answers apart from the existence of God. Doesn't mean the problems go away, but it means there's answers, big answers. Now, I want to turn. I, I, I want to move from this dark passage, which is all about disgrace, all about shame, all about sexual assault, violence, exploitation, and move to grace, from disgrace to grace, to the one-way love of God in, in, in Jesus Christ. And to set it up, I want to go back to verse 13. Look at Tam, Tamar's cry in verse 13. This is the cry of every, every victim. Where will I go to get rid of my disgrace? What's the answer to her question? Well, let me tell you what the answer isn't. Let's get this up on the screen. Unfortunately, the message you hear most often is self-heal, self-love, and self-help. Sexual assault victims are frequently told some version of the following. One can will one's well-being. Or if you are willing to work hard and find good support, you can not only heal but thrive. This sentiment is reflected in the famous quote, no one can disgrace us but ourselves. This is all horrible news. The reason this is bad news is that abuse victims are rightfully and understandably broken over how they have been violated. But those in pain simply may not have the wherewithal to pull themselves up by their bootstraps. On a superficial level, self-esteem techniques and a tough refusal to allow others to hurt me tactic may work for the short term. But what happens for the abused person on a bad day, a bad month, or a bad year? Sin and the effects of sin are similar to the laws of inertia. A person, an object in motion, will continue on that trajectory until acted upon by an outside force. If one is devastated by sin, a personal failure to rise above the effects of sin will simply create a snowball effect of shame. Such an important statement. Hurting people need something from the outside to stop the downward spiral. Fortunately, grace floods in from the outside at the point when hope to change oneself is lost. Grace declares and promises that you will be healed. 
So where's the grace? Well, where's the healing? Uh, where does Tamar get rid of her disgrace, her, her shame? Both the Old Testament and the New Testament answer is the same. It's the same. And the answer is not heal yourself. It's you will be healed. It's not healing comes from within. It's healing comes from God. So let me illustrate this in just one verse of one Old Testament passage. Uh, Jeremiah chapter 17. Heal me, Lord, and I will be healed. Save me and I will be saved. For you are the one I praise. This is an Old Testament illustration of a believer's understanding of grace. It doesn't come from me, it comes from you. You heal, you save, God. It's an Old Testament picture of grace. And according to the New Testament, this is fulfilled in the coming of Jesus Christ. So Jeremiah 17, 14 ultimately points to Jesus. I mean, think about it. Jesus came into the world claiming to be God, doing miracles only God could do. But Jesus didn't come to us and say, hey, suck it up and try harder. No, uh, Jesus uh, allowed himself to experience rejection, then humiliation, disgrace, and shame. As a matter of fact, uh, some commentators suggest that um, Tamar's actions in verse 19 uh, strikingly point to the experience our Lord Jesus had up to the cross. Jesus was beaten beyond recognition, uh, tortured, cruelly crucified, not for anything he did, but for your sin and, and my sin, to take it upon himself. Uh, this is exactly how Isaiah the prophet puts it in the Old Testament. Look at Isaiah 53. But he was pierced, not for his, but for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. By his wounds we are healed, because we all like sheep have gone astray. Each one of us has turned to our own way. Our lives are full of guilt, full of shame, full of disgrace. And the Lord has laid on him all of it. All of it. And the freedom and the salvation and the righteousness is ours for believing. So what is the cross of Jesus Christ? It's God so hating the disgrace and the shame of Tamar. Uh, so hating the sin of Amnon. That he put his son to death, not for revenge like Absalom but so Jesus could bear it. Uh, 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 bear the, the crime, bear the shame. And offer each and every one of us who, who will believe the, the perfect robe of his righteousness to replace our torn robe of disgrace. Uh, 
What took place on the cross? 2 Corinthians 5.21. He made him who knew no sin to be sin that we might become the righteousness of, of God in him. So this move from disgrace on the one hand to grace on the other is found in Jesus and it's precisely the message of the Bible. And we can't study 2 Samuel 13 without getting to Jesus. Because healing is is coming to Jesus. It's turning to Jesus. It's the, the table. It's what the table pictures, I should say. Because the cross, the cross of Jesus Christ is both a consequence of evil and and the solution to evil. So 2 Corinthians 5.17, if anyone is in Christ, he, she is a new creation. The old is gone and the new has come. So for us as followers of Christ to get an exilic biblical perspective on a, these massive issues of abuse and trafficking, uh, to, to see this, we've got to understand that the biblical perspective is formed by these bookends, disgrace and grace. And we dare not get lost in the middle. Now a couple implications. Number one. If uh, uh, subjects like this, uh, abuse, sex trafficking, are, are new, you, you honestly uh, haven't thought about this much, I want to invite you today to take a next step. Uh, to get informed, get involved in a, in a way that works for you. If you're a reader, read some of the books that I've listed on the insert. Or, or, or go to one of the, the, the tables. There's going to be a, a, a variety of people out in the atrium today representing different ministries, different opportunities. Man, talk to them. Uh, pick up some of the literature. Or go online. We've listed some sites for you. Uh, God cares deeply about the oppressed. And he wants you to care and to make a difference. Hebrews 13.3. Continue to remember those in prison as if you were together with them in prison and those who are mistreated as if you yourselves were suffering. A second implication. If you are Tamar, you've been abused, assaulted, exploited. And I want you to know that you are welcome here. We want you here. We are glad you are here. It's one of the reasons we have this support group, Chai. And if you haven't had the chance to become a part of that group, man, get the information. They'll be in the atrium. If you're Amnon, you've been the abuser. You're welcome here. We want you here. We long for Wheaton Bible Church to be a a community that, that welcomes and accepts all people, all people who hate their sin and fight it. Even when that, that, that battle involves setback and, 
and uh, failure. But we want you to know, and I've said this before in in this series, uh, this is a place of transformation. It's the church. It's a place of healing. Uh, It's the gospel. It's a place of learning. It's a, a place of discipline. But it is never a place to be indulged. Third, Healing is hard. We know healing is hard. Uh, uh, we do not underestimate the, the difficult of the healing process for the abused. Look at these words. Uh, you got to really think about these words. For many survivors of sexual abuse, the same two irreconcilable realities exist. The reality of a God who says he loves and provides refuge for the weak and the reality of the ongoing sexual violation of a child or a violent rape or abuse by a trusted caretaker such as a doctor or pastor. Each seems to cancel out the other, yet both exist. Again, the human mind can manage either alternative, sexual abuse and no God, or God and protection from sexual abuse, what is one to do with rape and the reality of God? Most victims will come down on one side or the other. They have faced the abuse or the rape, and God is not to be trusted. Or they hang on tightly to God, and the rape is no big deal. This dilemma is not easily solved. The damage is exacerbated whenever church leadership minimizes the evil by using timetables for healing, redefining the victim's story, or suggesting that the proper amount of faith will provide a quick and immediate fix for the devastation. I just hate that. I want to make sure that we grasp the profound impact of abuse to a person's understanding of God. Andrew Schmutzer is here. He's a professor at Moody's. He's here at Wheaton Bible Church. And this massive book is so rich. In Jesus Christ, the point is in Jesus Christ, healing is possible. But healing is hard. You you do people in your life no favors if you minimize it. Fourth, and I'll be done with this. Be loving. Be loving. What you want is for people to see Jesus and to see Jesus' love. Therefore, they must see your love. Jesus came into the world to reveal God's love. He sends us into the world so that we might reveal God's love. But for the victim, this is complex because what they have seen, what they have experienced is the antithesis of love and the trust of God. Or the love and truth of God, I should say. And so if we want them to understand that God is a refuge, then you need to be a refuge. God is faithful. God is steady. God is kind. God is forgiving. Then you need to be faithful, steady, kind, and forgiving. And so we speak the truth in love, and we always, always point people to Jesus in this move from disgrace to grace. There's no other way. And we back it up by dying to ourselves and living a life 
of love. Let's pray. Father, would you, in this moment, give grace for people that are here who've been betrayed, violated, abused, abandoned. We ask that in the horror of that shame and disgrace that you would reveal the greater grace of Jesus Christ. Uh, For this world of ours, God, that's um, caught in this nightmare of sex trafficking, we, we pray that you would break the bondage and you would rescue and deliver. And we pray for the church and our the Church of Jesus Christ around the world for our uh, sister organizations. And we ask, God, that you would help us to be courageous and to be loving. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen.